Decoding Cyberspace is brought to you by the SGAC Space and Cybersecurity Project Group, mobilizing the creativity and vigor of youth in advancing humanity through the peaceful uses of outer space. to episode 8 of Decoding Cyberspace, a show dedicated to exploring the frontiers of information communication technology and cybersecurity across the final frontier. On this episode, we are delighted to welcome special guest Dr. PJ Blount, a research fellow in cyberspace regulation and governance at SES and the University of Luxembourg, and an adjunct professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Dr. Blount was a visiting scholar at the Beijing Institute of Technology School of Law, and former research counsel for the National Center for Remote Sensing, Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi. His areas of specialization span space security, international telecommunications, cybersecurity, international law, human rights, intellectual property, and US foreign policy. Dr. Blount, welcome to Decoding Cyberspace and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Happy to be here. Awesome. So to start off, could you help brief our audience more about your professional background, particularly your experiences leading to your current role at the University of Luxembourg? Yeah, so, well, I'm, a, I'm obviously, a, if that, that bio that you gave didn't give it away, I'm an academic lawyer. Um, and so I, um, after getting my law degree ages ago, um, I went off to, to the University of, uh, to King's College London and got an LLM in public international law. And I, I worked under a professor there and I wrote my thesis in space law. Um, and, you know, I, I did it without any particular, you know, interest in space law, it just kind of sounded fun at the time. Um, and then when I got done writing it, I was like, you know, that, that was actually a lot of fun and that was interesting and a, and a job opened back up at the University of Mississippi. Um, and so I applied in and, and you know, from there, um, I've a part of this community. Um, and so I've, I've worked at the University of Mississippi since 2007. I used to be full-time there and now I only adjunct there. Um, and when the opportunity uh, arose to, to come to the University of Luxembourg, I, I jumped at it uh, as, as Luxembourg is really an interesting place when it comes to space right now. I, I joke with people sometimes that it's hard to go outside without tripping over a space startup um, here. So there's a there's a lot of excitement and a lot of action um, here. And, and my current position, I, I you know, it's obligatory for me to say that um, it's a, a grant-funded position by the, the Luxembourg National Research Fund. And um, the position itself is to do a large research study on um, cyberspace security or cybersecurity for the space industry. And so um, I'm in the just entering into the second year of that project. It's a two-year project. Um, and, and so hopefully at the end of this year, I will there will be an open access document that really um, goes into sort of a deep dive on, on how you do cybersecurity law for the space industry. Absolutely. So aside from cybersecurity, what other research areas are you currently focusing upon and where do you see yourself in five years? Um, oh gosh, uh, I I am one of those people that's that's all over the place um, uh, a lot of the time. So I'm doing a project on space resources currently. Um, I my background has has been consistently in space security. So I have a, a, a project going on space security, specifically looking at at uh, the prevention of an arms race in outer space and sort of the um, diplomatic uh, stance of that as it currently is. But you know, I'm I'm also looking at uh, 
uh, I have a project uh, that I'm co-authoring right now on cybercrime at the International Criminal Court. Um, so yeah, all over the place all the time. I, I have a blockchain project and yeah, it's just everywhere. Um, and where do I see myself in five years is always a fun question. I, I was, when I was in law school, I got asked that in a, in a job interview and without skipping a beat, I, I told them, yeah, running a fishing store and making six figures, um, which did not impress the interviewer, which is where I'd still like to be in five years. Um, no, actually, I, I hope that I'm still in Luxembourg. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed it here. And so um, my goal is to, to, to find a niche here and, and stay here but um you know i i have learned that it's never never good to to predict where you'll be in five years as it, your predictions will inevitably be incorrect absolutely uh, moving along from this what is it about outer space which excites you and where did your uh, interest initially stem from so i'm gonna I, i'll tell a story here because i think it's 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 kind of a funny one i um so so Several years ago, I was at this long table full of space lawyers. This was an IAC, and somebody said, "You know what we should do is go around the table, and everybody can say how they got into space law." And you know, each person stood up, and they're like, "As an eight-year-old, I looked up at the stars, and I decided that I wanted to have, you know." And it got real dreamy like that. And it gets to me, and I was like, "I impulse bought it. I, I wrote a thesis on this because I thought it would be kind of funny." Um, and then I. I decided that it was fun and, and ended up here. So um, my interest really initially rose as, an, inter, as a, a, an international law scholar. I was doing um, an LLM in public international law. Um, the core of my studies were really the law of armed conflict, international criminal law, human rights law. Um, that's where I had, had focused. And I did my thesis on space law just sort of as an aside. Um, and I really kind of fell in love with it there. I mean, I, I had, um, you know, in high school, we had a technology teacher that, that you know, did space projects with us, and it was fun, but it wasn't anything that you know I walked away from. It was like I want to do that. Um, it was it was really later on as a as a um, part of international law that I became attracted to it. Um, and and I think that that there's something to be said for that. It's the the idea that when you look at international law, the space regime itself um, challenges the international law regime in, in a lot of interesting ways. It, it, it changes the rules in, in a lot of interesting ways. And I think that is um, a fascinating thing from an international law perspective to see how um, the, the, the states decided to organize themselves in this um, extraordinarily extraterritorial regime. Um, yeah, so I think that answers that question mostly. Absolutely. And given recent developments in space tourism, if given the opportunity, would you personally like to travel to space? Uh, you know, when when I got married, my wife made me promise that I wouldn't go to space um, because danger there. I, you know, there's part of me that would really love to answer this question and say, yes, I'd love to go to space. I think it would be fun. And I do. Like, I, I think it would be awesome. Um, I don't think that I would get on board many of these uh, initial crafts, though. Um, I do think there's a, a lot of danger and risk involved in it. Um, you know, I was I was talking to somebody the other day about the um, this, this new, and I don't know the guy's name, but flight on, a, I think, a, a SpaceX Falcon. He's bought the flight. Um, and I was reading about it, and it's, it's I think it's a two- to four-day trip, but they're just staying on that capsule, right? That sounds miserable. Um, it's like being in a tent with four people for four days. Um, so I don't know. You know I, I do think going to space would be really cool and awesome. I don't know that I want to go under the current circumstances, though. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> Noting your background in international law, though, 
what is it? What is your perspective on the 1967 Outer Space Treaty? Is the document still relevant in its existing form to the current space environment? Yeah, I think the Outer Space Treaty is still extraordinarily relevant. Um, I think the Outer Space Treaty has gotten challenged a lot recently. There's this sort of narrative that we see within the space community that the Outer Space Treaty, you know, it was written in the 60s. And so it doesn't, you know, it wasn't thinking about um, the technology that we have today. And if you look at the Outer Space Treaty, it really doesn't say that much about technology. Um, it mentions human spaceflight. Uh, it talks about launch um, capabilities. And, and it discusses in Article 12 facilities on the moon and other celestial Beyond that, right, your core things that we were doing in space even then, um, remote sensing, telecommunications, never mentioned in this treaty at all. And there's a reason for that. The Outer Space Treaty was written to be very flexible. Um, it is technologically neutral in a sense. Uh, the, the, the principles that are laid out are meant to apply across a broad range of technology. The other thing that, that I think that's important and, and gets missed a lot is the Outer Space Treaty isn't um, a treaty that, that, you know, I tell students all the time that the Outer Space Treaty doesn't care if you make a profit. It doesn't care if you don't make a profit. The Outer Space Treaty isn't really about commercial actors, which is where a lot of the complaints about the treaty come from. Um, the treaty is about security. Space is a strategic domain, and the treaty sets out a way in which states can organize themselves to reduce the risk of conflict, and that was the, the initial goal of the treaty. Um, now, I, I obviously think that the, the treaty could have maybe gone a bit further um, in, in, in doing that, but, but I don't know that we're going to get a better deal than, than the Outer Space Treaty right now. I think that a lot of the complaints about the treaty are the perceptions that we have built around um, Article 2 and, and the, the space resources debate. Um, and there are obviously been reams and reams of paper um, wasted on, on discussing Article 2 and whether Article 2 allows commercial exploitation um, of, of, um, of resources in space. Now, and my position is that Article 2 doesn't, right? It, 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 it sets limits on how we allocate property in, in outer space um, based on, on the ability of states to claim territory in outer space, but it doesn't actually um, prohibit exploitation. Yet, there seems to be this narrative out there that, um, that Article 2 is the reason why we're not exploiting space resources, right? That the law has stood in the way. Um, and and I, I think that that's a really false narrative, right? I, obviously, um, you know, there are huge there's a huge technological gap before we can actually do these types of things um, in a real commercially profitable way. Um, we don't even we, we haven't even really seen a good uh, business model for this yet. Um, and so to say that the Outer Space Treaty is the reason that we haven't done this yet seems to be a bit far-fetched to me. Um, so I, I think the Outer Space Treaty still really has a, a valuable place in space law um, in, in that it is the core document that lays out how states are, states are supposed to interact. Um, and, and it does that in very soft terms. I, I, I honestly, like, you know, the, the, the treaty itself is extraordinarily permissible. Um, but, but you know, it's what we've got. And, and I don't think that we should ditch it until, um, you know, we have a moment where states are really ready to come together and negotiate in good faith on something new. And, and right now, states are not willing to come together and negotiate in good faith on something new. Additionally, what are the key international instruments guiding state activities in cyberspace? <laughs> Um, there aren't any. Um, I, 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 so um, I, I 
wrote a, a book. I, I published it in, in 2019. And the, the jumping off point for that book, the, the idea behind it, um, and, and the book is sort of international law, but it's, it's really much more international relations. But the, the, the jumping off point is, is when we look at other transnational technologies, international law has extended its authority over these quite readily, right? Um, the, the telegraph emerges in the, the you know, early to mid 1800s. We get the ITU as the International Telegraph Union in 1865. Um, as uh, wireless um, communications emerge, the ITU is able to um, extend itself over those. As satellite communications emerge, um, the ITU is able to extend itself over those. Space, we get um, space exploration or, or you know, Sputnik launches in 1957. We get the, the um, Outer Space Treaty. Uh, 10 years later. Uh, nuclear weapons, we get the, the NPT and the um, and the limited test ban treaty uh, quite quick. Um, limited test ban treaty, I believe, is, is 1958, 59, somewhere around in there. Um, I mean, very, very quick after that. Um, aviation, same thing. We get the Chicago Convention, not too deep into that. The first cyberspace technologies were demonstrated in the 60s. Um, it spread to universities throughout the 70s and 80s. Um, in around 93, 94, we have it, um, what I call going public, but it's actually that it gets privatized so we can all have it at home. Um, and, and, you know, now it's ubiquitous, right? It's in everything. You know, there are um, networked refrigerators and coffee makers and light bulbs and whatnot. Cyberspace is everywhere. Yet international law has had a, a lukewarm response at best. We have um, the one treaty the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, um, which doesn't have a large number of state parties. It also um, only requires states to adopt laws to punish cybercrimes. Um, it doesn't actually really govern cyberspace. And, and this is a really interesting thing, especially when you look at something like the ITU. Um, the ITU in its, its um, in the, the constitution of the convention where it, where it lays out the purposes has sort of competency around electronic communication. Certainly the internet and cyberspace fit within that rubric of electronic communication. Um, however, the ITU has really been incapable of extending any real authority over these technologies. Um, and, and I think there are a lot of reasons for this. I think it has a lot to do with how cyberspace is constructed, um, how cyberspace is, is, is really actually regulated by these um, interesting non-governmental multi-stakeholder you know, actors. Uh, and, and, and I think that it, it actually challenges international law and international relations um, in a fascinating way in that it creates, um, it, it, it creates sort of a, a challenge to, to the, the logics of international law. And I, and I think that that's a fascinating question. So um, yeah, I don't, I can't name you the key international instruments because they're just, they're just aren't any. Hmm. So in bringing together these two, two areas, in what ways do you see cybersecurity as intersecting with outer space affairs? So I'll, I'll, I'll again crib from, from earlier work. I, I published an article in 2018, I guess. Um, and the title of it was, Your Satellite is Just a Thing on the Internet of Things. And, and that's the intersection, right? Um, or, or maybe, let me put it in legal terms, right? If we look at space law, um, and we just talked about how space law doesn't really refer to any specific technology. Um, but if we look at how, uh, what space law does address, it, it addresses um, space activities and space objects, right? Um, and so it's very concerned about what states are doing in space. And, and it's very concerned about how they're, they're treating their objects, right? Well, what does cybersecurity law address? Well, to the extent that we can identify a body of cybersecurity law, it is addressing um, networks and devices 
devices and information. So the extent that um, your space object is networked um, to the extent that your space object is running, uh, um, you know, is holding digital information, cybersecurity um, is, is a concern for it. It's, it's a very real concern for it um, because if, if, you know, if your satellite is just a thing on the Internet of Things, um, then your satellite is at risk. And, and for a long time, uh, I think that, that space was sort of able to cruise along with not worrying about this problem too much because um, the, 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 the risk of hacking was remote. And if we're thinking about cybersecurity, um, it's a risk management process. And so if the risk is remote, then we don't have to spend a lot of money on it. I think the, the, the barriers to, to actually um, interfering with satellites and, and um, and, and getting information out of satellites, exploiting them for, for, for information purposes, um, are, are lowering. And as a result, um, the operators are going to have to put more, are going to have to be more concerned with cybersecurity. And just to add another layer on top of that, what influence do you potentially see human rights as having upon the intersection between cybersecurity and outer space affairs? So, you know, this is a, an, an interesting question because um, I see, obviously, I think that, that cyberspace and cybersecurity has, uh, and, and writ large, right, cybersecurity writ very large, has a massive effect on, on human rights. Um, if we look at how um, various states control the Internet, I think I saw a, a an article the other day that, that Cambodia was um, going to, to raise up sort of the, a firewall around itself, as we've seen other states do. Um, as we see these types of, of, um, of, of actions from states, obviously there are human rights effects to how that plays out. Um, at the same time, and, and, and within space, right, um, I, I also have addressed the idea of human rights before, and, and this is how we use space to enable human rights um, on, on the ground, um, you know, specifically things like um, using remote sensing to, to, to help, um, you know, mitigate uh, crises or to, to help um, look into human rights violations, right? Space actually has a, has a role in this. Um, how these intersect, um, human rights, space, and cybersecurity, really is going to depend on how um, how the space assets are used and how they are implicated back into um, the, 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 um, the, the networked world down below us. And, you know, one of the, the places where we might see this, I think, is sort of in the, the new space companies that are coming out that are um, really pursuing a different model when it become when it comes to things like data analytics. So you know, back in the day, um, your remote sensing satellite would take the image. Um, they would have the raw data. They would sell the raw data, or they might process it once and they would sell that on. Um, and then third parties actually did most of the the building data products out of it. Now, when you look at a company like Planet, um, or you look at these companies um, like Spire, or Hawkeye 360, or Cleos that are looking to pull in um, data and information from, from the, the surface of the Earth, they are looking to build their own data products, um, which means that while, yes, they're using space data, they also might be using other data pools um, to, to build a, a much richer data product. And so the extent to which human rights exists in those other data pools, because honestly, remote sensing, it, it can ha it can be a tool in human rights, but it's not um, it's not going to affect, you know, your individual human right, you know, right now. Right. The, the, the um, <coughs> excuse me, the. Um, 
the resolution is just still not there to really say, well, you know, that person's privacy right has been, uh, you know, invaded by the satellite. It, it, it doesn't look, I don't think it works like that. But the extent to which um, other data sources get imbricated in and pulled in and mixed with means that we might have privacy issues. It means that we could have um, surveillance type issues that, that, that occur from this, from these rich data products that are built on both sort of cyber technologies as well as space data. Absolutely. And acknowledging the recognition of both outer space and cyberspace as potential domains for conflict in the 21st century, is there potential for conflict in one domain to spill over into the other? Always. Always. Um, and, and I would just say that, um, you know, even if you look at sort of the, the historical scholarship on space conflict, um, really, if you, you know, there's there's sort of a sci-fi end of it as, oh, yeah, we'll be up there shooting lasers at each other with satellites. But that's never been what militaries have been thinking about. Um, you know, militaries are concerned about how space enables their, their, their war fighting capacity on the earth, um, and which means that their opponents are concerned with how to interfere with that capacity in space. Um, so even just a basic terrestrial war has the ability to spill into space um, and, and, and vice versa. And cyberspace, as we've seen, um, it can be a, a new tool in warfare as well. Um, so, you know, if we think about uh, the sort of the early examples of um, uh, the, the the Russian interference um, with websites in Estonia and Georgia um, during uh, the conflicts in like 2007, 2008, 2009, right around in there, um, you know, we see immediately how this, this was being used as a tool then. And we know that those capabilities have only gotten better since then, right? You know, a, DDD, a DDoS attack on a website seems like small fries compared to, you know, um, shutting down power grids and stuff like that. So um, the ability to spill over is always there. And, and I would say that, that in all likelihood, it's, it is the only way that we, we really see space conflict, right? We're not going to see satellites fighting each other. We're going to see um, a conflict that spills over from one to the other. And, and I think that cyberspace is the same thing, right? It's a tool in, in, um, in warfare. It's not going to be just a, you know, a shootout on the internet because that's not really much of a war. It's always going to spill into other domains. So what steps can the international community assume in promoting cooperation, peace and stability across both domains? I think that we need to see the international community actually return to the table in, in, in good faith. And um, I, I've argued before, particularly within um, the, the space domain, that, you know, you have this, this thing where all the, every state, every state's like, yeah, you know what would be great is the prevention of an arms race in outer space. We think that'd be really nice. We don't want to see armaments in space. That Like all states say this, yet at the same time, there's no consensus um, on how to do that. There seems to be no moving forward. As we all know, the conference on disarmament is deadlocked. Um, UN Copulus really doesn't create the same sorts of documents that they did in the past. And I, I think that this is is uh, attributable to the fact that that and and that I, I think that the major players don't want to see any any change in the system. They like the permissibility of the system. And, and by the major players, I really mean here, I, I think the United States, Russia, and China are all very, very comfortable with the permissiveness of the current system and are happy to see things stall out. They're also happy to give it lip service and say, it would be great. Yeah, we, we, we love that. But 
but they're not willing to actually negotiate in good faith. And I think there are plenty of examples of this. Um, the United States is has broken consensus at the the, the last GG. GGE on space, the group of governmental experts, um, and and are sort of notorious for doing that um, at UN Copulus, and and were a, a big um, a big barrier at the conference on disarmament, although that went away under the Obama administration. Um, but if you look at the EU code of conduct negotiations that happened in New York, I believe in 2014, um, Russia and China showed up and said, no, no, this is not the forum for this. The forum for this is the conference on disarmament. But they all, of course, knew that the conference on disarmament was deadlocked. So I, I really think that there needs to be, um, you know, good faith coming to the table and, and discussing things. And I think that that's uh, something that's difficult to see from from the major players right now is is um, sitting down and, and and actually discussing things. And, um, and and I think that that that's the biggest problem. I, I think that um, really there is this. They see strategic advantage in the permissiveness of the regime and as a result um, don't see strategic advantage in in discussing new normative orders and that's in space i think that when you get to cyberspace that's like it's it's multiplied it's amplified um cyberspace is an incredibly permissive uh, uh, area that gives states a lot of new tools um one of the things that that i, I like to talk about is um you know in in pre pre cyberspace we we had this sort of notion that there was um measure short of war and then you crossed the line and you violated article 24 and we were in in a use of force area um and i think that cyberspace has done this weird thing of open up a gray area between that sort of accepted measures short of war and the use of force and states are still playing in that area and are still figuring out what the limits are and what the red lines are um and i think that that's going to be something that that we're going to see continue to play out before we ever see states really come to the, the, the table and, and talk about how we do these things. And noting the recent release of the 2020 US space policy and China's intensifying activities in outer space, which nation do you see as best positioned to dominate and influence the outer space domain? And in what key ways are China and the US seeking to assert influence in space affairs? So I think that the that first question there, uh, which nation is best positioned? I actually think the United States is best positioned, um, and 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 here's why, right? The, the United States spends an obscene amount of money on on space, um, both on space exploration and on their military capabilities, um, and and so I, I, I and and has traditionally been a leader since you know the 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 1950s, 1960s. They've been a leader in space. Um, however, I think the United States is currently engaged. In, in, in some very just kind of ham-handed, self-serving um, foreign policy in this area. Um, I, I think the United States has the ability to be a leader on constructing normative orders that serve everybody. And, and I think that this is in the United States' interest, right? The United States has um, more space assets up there. They're at more risk of loss of space assets. Um, and yet they seem to be um, more we seem to be obsessed with, you know, well, it, we should have some space weapons to protect those assets. And it, it, that's just, it's not really a coherent way of thinking about it, right? If I'm a commercial actor, the last thing that I want is the United States to have a bunch of space weapons to escalate things in space. I want de-escalation. I want coordination. I want to be able to be secure in my investment. Um, and so I think that the United States is really well positioned to be a leader in this area. Again, um, I think that it's going to require the United States 
States to sort of step away from uh, pugilistic rhetoric in, in space, um, which we may see under the Biden administration. I don't know. I, I, I think that that um, that that our, our, our tact in, in the space domain has actually been pretty, pretty straightforward since the Clinton administration. Right. There, there hasn't been very many changes on this. Um, and 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 in any re-engage with the attempt to, to figure out ways in which to secure the space environment. Um, what are the key ways that China and the U.S. are seeking to influence space affairs? Um, I, I think that, that, that the U.S., as we've just talked about, is, is right now trying to push sort of this, this the, their commercial um, ventures, right? Uh, if you look at, at really the, the space policy under the Trump administration outside of Space Force, it was very much about trying to um, encourage commercial space activities, um, which I think is well and good. I, I have no problem with that. Um, but we, we do have to be realistic in that um, these are commercial actors in a strategic domain. Those commercial actors, um, it's not just about you know having a light regulatory touch for those commercial actors. It's also about helping um, to make sure that their investments are safe from interference from other states, and that it requires um, a cooperative mechanism. Uh, China, I'm, I'm not a China expert, and so I'm not going to delve deep into China. Um, we see China sort of of um, I, I think that we see China kind of in a wait and see approach, right? China's not really looking to um, to, to assert um, new norms in space. Uh, but I, I often get the impression when I'm listening to you in copious debates that, that China's sort of waiting to see which way the wind blows um, and, and, and waiting to see how that might um, affect them. You know, they're still building up their space capacity. They're still building up um, a, a commercial capacity. Um, and so I, I kind of get a, a, a wait and see see approach from China that seeks to kind of preserve that permissibility that, that I was talking about, um, but also just to kind of see, you know, how they can best position themselves. And so I don't see them right now trying um, to push the normative order in any particular way, um, but much more sort of just, you know, kind of seeing how it's going to play out um, as it moves forward. But again, I'm not a China expert, so don't quote me on that. Don't quote me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, moving along, in January of 2021, the Russian Duma proposed legislation to find domestic citizens and companies which use SpaceX's Starlink internet services. Do you anticipate that the issue of internet governance will have a continuing impact upon future developments in space? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I didn't know about this in, in, until you, you raised this question. And I do, I mean, I think that if we're looking at these new mega constellations that are attempting to spread internet connectivity, right? I think we're, we're almost back in the, the it's like a, a flashback to the 1980s and the direct broadcasting principles. Um, the concern about um, all uh, in, in the 80s was that these these direct broadcasting satellites were going to send down um, information into states that didn't want that information in their borders. Um, and, and, you know, really a sort of a modern or a part of the modern, um, you know, uh, international uh, regime built on state territory is that states have kind of had control over information. Um, and space was really uh, kind of the, the first big challenge to that is if I can have a satellite overhead, I can broadcast down and anyone with a receiver can pull that in. And that still see, is, is an issue, right? Um, very recently, we've seen Iran jamming the Utahsat satellite over, I believe, the, the BBC and, and CNN being transmitted down in, into Iran. Um, and so so that's, that's going to be there. Well, if you think about 
about it in terms of, of internet, um, the internet has been a major challenge to states who are trying to maintain control over information within their borders. Even those that, that have, um, have uh, you know, strict controls at the border often find this being eroded um, by by technological means, um, I, you know, I was I was in China once, and and a British guy said, "Yeah, I mean, there's a firewall, but everybody I know is jumping over it um, because you know there are lots of VPNs that you can use to to get around things." Um, and so, I think that 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 as as we move more into these these internet business models in space, um, internet governance is going to become a, a bigger issue because um, as these beam down, you know, if you think about a state that's that that has erected sort of a cyber border around, but they're really one of the the main parts of that is controlling the the, the physical places um, where where outside information comes into the country. Um, well, if it's coming from Starlink satellites into the country, um, that's going to be an issue, um, and and those satellites, um, you know, are, are going to be subject to local telecommunication laws. But the extent that somebody can, you know, just um, you know, smuggle in a receiver means that there there might be issues with um, with 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 how these satellites interact with the, those state territories. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that these these new models create a lot of issues um, for internet governance. I, I, although I, I'm still out to lunch as to whether or not these are actually strong business models or not, and whether whether these um, these these massive internet um, constellations are going to survive. And noting the completion of China's Baidu satellite constellation in 2020 and the proliferation of mass satellite constellations over the coming decade, do you foresee GPS and telecommunication services as the next areas of strategic competition? I mean, I would say they're already areas of strategic competition. G GPS or, or GNSS um, already, um, I think, is. I mean, um, you know, GPS was sort of top dog for a bit and then um, you know the the Russia decided they were going to go with GLONASS, and then I think Galileo is uh, even in the EU, right? The the United States and the EU are allies, um, but I, I think that um, there was this idea that that um, the EU needed a civil system in order to not be beholden to the United States's military system. Um, China obviously wants their own system, right? They they recognize that they aren't going to be able to rely on GPS or or other systems um, if there is some. Sort Sort of, of crisis. So um, I, I do think there's going to be strategic competition there, but I, I think you're going to see it only from, from big players, right? Um, uh, GNSS systems are hard to, to deploy and they're expensive to upkeep. So you're not going to see, you know, Andorra putting up its own um, GNSS system. Um, so, so I think the strategic competition is going to be from major players and it's going to be very much linked to their, um, to their, their, um, their needs and wants and, and strategies on the ground. Um, communications as well always is, I mean, but, but communications has always been part of um, what's going on in space. I mean, it, it's it's really the one of the first technologies that we see deployed um, in the 60s that, that really leverages space. We've seen it go commercial, um, but militaries always have their own um, uh, telecommunication satellites. And so even in the EU now, we see GovSatcom um, as one of their, their flagship, emerging flagship programs which is intended to be telecommunications for governments. Um, and so I, I think that, that you know, both of these have, have long been um, areas of strategic uh, competition. And, and maybe that, that, 
you know, those, those internet capabilities that we we're just talking about are going to change the nature of it a bit. Um, but, but yeah, I think competition is going to, to, to continue here um, for, for the foreseeable future. And finally, to finish off, if you were to become the president of the United States, how would you work to promote international peace and security in outer space? I would sit back down to the table. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing, right? I, I, so there's there's sort of been this continuum, and I, and I, I talked about this a little bit already in, in, in U.S. space policy, the, the, to oppose new rules, right? To oppose new international rules. And this is linked a bit to sort of um, a neoconservative bent that, that is skeptical of international law. Um, but it's also linked very much to sort of the permissiveness of the legal regime as it is now and how that serves U.S. strategic interests. Um, but under the George W. Bush administration, um, literally the policy became that we're not even going to sit down to the table to talk about it. Right. We we refuse to, to even have the conversation on new rules and norms for outer space. And I think that this is a massive mistake. Um, I, I think that the United States has pursued this policy for too long and should at least sit back down to the table and, and have the discussion. Right. Fine. You may not want to adopt the rules that that, that come out of that. But just having the conversation, I think, would go a very long way um, towards helping to towards uh, it, helping to, to kind of re-entrench um, that cooperative order that really um, reigned from sort of uh, 1957 into you know the the late 70s and maybe even mid 80s, depending on where you draw your lines. Um, and and I, I think that if we could get back to at least having fruitful conversations, not necessarily conversations that lead to new treaties, um, but but fruitful conversations on on um, how to think about space security and how to think about the norms of space and specifically how to think about the peaceful uses of outer space that that, that would um, go uh, a long way in helping to secure um, you know the peaceful uses of outer space into the future so yeah I would I would just sit back down to the table in a good faith manner I think that's the biggest thing that the US could do right now Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Blanche, for your unique insights into geopolitics, strategy, and space power. We look forward to expanding on these topics with you again in the future. Oh, no problem. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks. And for our curious listeners out there eager to learn more about geopolitics and international relations in NASA space, you can reach out to Dr. Blanche via his Twitter handle, at Folly. We thank you for joining us today and we look forward to you joining us again for our next episode of Decoding Cyberspace.